It's a great day to flex your freedom. I'm your host, Barb Allen. Really excited about this new platform that we've got moving forward here. If you've been following us for these past few years on American Snippets, thank you so much. And thank you for taking this walk here with us into this new platform, uh, Flex Your Freedom on our Great American Syndicate. A lot of changes for us in this past year, as can be said, really for, I'm sure, everybody in this whole country, right? But um, over this past year for us, we've put off our events, our first ever Great American Summit in January. Here it was amazing, but it taught me a lot of stuff too. And one of the things, the surprising lessons that I learned is that um, I have been remiss. I have been largely, largely remiss with you, our audience and the people who support us, because I've been walking this walk all along. And so many of you have been with us from the early days. And so I think I just sort of overlooked the fact that we have new people joining us. And so while I have veered away from sharing my story and what led us into this whole platform and everything that we're doing, um, some people aren't familiar with our story or where we come from or how we started or why we started. And look, we all have stories. We all have things. We all have reasons for being where we are today. And that stems back from where we were years ago. And I fell into this um, habit of not sharing my story because it was, it was depressing at first. When, when I first lost my husband, people wanted me to come out and speak. They said they wanted me to share my story, but what they really wanted was for me to share my pain and my tragedy and the trauma we were in. And there was a purpose for that. It wasn't like all voyeuristic. They were just getting some sick pleasure out of hearing our story, right? A lot of these were fundraising events or patriotic events, and they wanted to tug at people's heartstrings. They wanted to show support, but really what they wanted was for me to relive my pain in front of live audiences on a regular basis. And that was not sustainable. Right. And then as time grew, went on and I started to evolve and become more than just the terrible things that have happened in our life, I, I shied away from telling the details of my story because I didn't want to bring an audience down. I didn't want to depress people. And people would say to me, oh, thank you for not, you know, being so depressing. I think when you're introduced as a widow and you're, you know, the quick background blurb is given, everyone's like, oh, this is going to be so horrible. Right. And so I didn't want to disappoint people. I didn't want to bring people down. And then I also let myself be sort of tweaked a little. And I listened to the people, the words of the people in my ear who didn't necessarily want me to succeed, right? There were people, believe it or not, there are people in this world who may not like me very much, right? And I know, I know, hard to believe, hard to believe, but it's true. There are people who are not fans of yours truly. And as happens with anybody, when we break out from our mold, when we break out from being this broken victim we were, or when we start to achieve different levels of success, the people who need us to stay small so they can feel big, resent that. They don't want to hear it. So they start saying things to you and doing things to you to kind of convince you to stay down where they need you to be, right? And I was hearing these things from some people. I was hearing such terrible things as people saying I was profiting off of my husband's death. I was hearing people saying I'm exploiting the situation or I'm just making some stuff up and yada, yada, yada on it went. And, and I let those things kind of bring me down and talk me out of sharing my story, because yes, of course, it's my husband's story and it's a terrible thing. But anytime something happens in the life of somebody you love, anytime you lose somebody you love, 
in the way I love my husband, it's your story too. It, everything we do is connected, right? So what's one person's story, if they're in your life, they're part of your story too. And I joke to people, right? I'm like, be careful, or I'm going to write you into my book, right? Uh, Because we don't realize how we all are interwoven in each other's stories. So like I said, we had our first event in January and we worked so hard at this event. And I got up there on stage uh, to do, you know, I was on the on the stage throughout the two day event, speaking little tidbits, but my, the big portion of my talk was towards the end of the event. I was one of the last speakers and I had this really surprisingly unprepared for emotional moment with somebody behind stage. It's sort of something happened. It was a personal moment and it kind of tore me up a little and it put me in this crazy mindset. Um, I was like sobbing like half an hour before I went on stage and I sort of just went off on a, on a tangent and I didn't want to bring more people down because I was already in a bad place. I didn't want to speak my pain and I didn't share my story on the stage. And that meant that there were people at our events. I have gone so far to the other extreme that there were speakers in our event who didn't know my story, who didn't know what had happened, who didn't know about my husband. Uh, they knew that he was killed in Iraq. They didn't know he was murdered by another soldier and they didn't know that that soldier was acquitted at trial. Right. And so there you have the nutshell of my story. But as we move into this new platform here, I am going to start a new start afresh by welcoming people who may not be familiar with us before. And thank you all for joining us, whether you're new uh, to our audience or you've been with us all along. We appreciate you here so much. I'm going to share a little more detail of my story, A, because it's important that you get to know the people behind this platform and why we do what we do, but B, to encourage you to tap into your story as well and draw the lessons out of it. And I think that there are things um, in the path of my story, what I've been through in my life that are going to be able to be pulled out and applied to situations and moments in your life too. This is the book that I wrote about my husband's murder and the Capitol Court Martial Front Toward Enemy. And it is titled so because Front Toward Enemy is the is what's inscribed on the Claymore mine. Claymore mine is the weapon that was used to kill my husband and Phil. And you know, there was a point in time when I actually had a model, Claymore Mine. And when I was being interviewed, I would pull this little model, Claymore Mine out. I carried one into the studios of Fox. I carried one into the Fox News studios one day and Harris Faulkner, I think, uh, almost fell out of her chair a little. She was like, how the hell did you get that through security? I say, good question, Fox, but it was fake. It wasn't a real mine. It was fake, but um, that's how far I went into sharing my story. I mean, I would go there and I went on one show after another, after another, and I shared my pain and I shared the details of my husband's death and murder because I wanted people to, to care. I wanted them to pay attention right? Uh, and, and those shows wanted me. A lot of the stories, the new shows that had me on, you know, if it leads, it leads, that kind of thing, right? Uh, that's a whole other aspect of when you're in a situation where you're thrust into a, a, a spotlight for any reason, because something tragic has happened to you. Um, there's a whole other side of that on how to be that person and navigate and understand what these people really want from you, right? But at the time, that is what I was doing. And then I got to a point where I just got tired of speaking that pain because it is a really, really, it's a hard story to talk about, right? 
and it's hard to hear, but it does matter. And so I'm going to share that with you here. I'm not going to go into all the details of this Capitol Court Marshall and all the things that happened. You can find that all out in my book. Uh, you can ping me directly if you have questions. Bar Balance Speaks uh, on Instagram um, and barbalancespeaks.com is my website. Greatamericansyndicate.com is our website. But I'm going to share with you now the story that I have been remiss in sharing with so many of you. Uh, for now. Um, and bear with me if it gets a little emotional at some times. Okay. Cause even now all these years later, it can still be, can still be hard to talk about sometimes. So my husband was Lieutenant Lewis Allen and he was in the army national guard. This was in 2005. It was on June 8th, 2005. I was home and waiting for him to call. I'd been up all night waiting for him to call. He'd been in Iraq for 10 days. Lou had deployed to Iraq specifically to meet up with his friend and commanding officer, Captain Philip Esposito. Uh, Lou was taking over as the uh, property book officer and the company supply officer for the 42nd Infantry Division because the staff sergeant, Alberto Martinez, who was in that position, was a disaster. And this guy should have never been in the National Guard to begin with. And matter of fact, the Army Reserve and the Navy Reserve turned him down outright. And I don't blame them. He had things in his past, which made him unfit to wear the uniform of our country, really. Uh, but the Army National Guard allowed him in anyway. Not only did they let him in, but they gave him a mental category four waiver because he couldn't score high enough on the tests. So in his past, in his civilian life, Martinez, uh, he had worked for UPS and they had fired him twice for theft of time and theft of goods. But both of those times, Martinez just didn't sit back and go quietly into the good night. You know, he yelled discrimination because he was Puerto Rican. So instead of taking accountability for saying, yes, I was stealing, I was doing this and getting fired and going on his merry way, he turned around, he sued UPS for discrimination. UPS caved and paid him his unemployment benefits. And so now Martinez was emboldened and he was smarter, right? And then he went on to do other things. He was still, he was behind like five months in his mortgage payment, but what did he do? He took his family to Disney and then he upped his home insurance policy from like $110 to like a hundred, I mean, hundred, like $12,000 to $126,000, something like that. And like three months after he did that, his house mysteriously burns to the ground. So he was just sitting back waiting to collect from his insurance company because the fire department said it was accidental. The insurance company said it wasn't, and he was in this dispute, right? But he was going to win, but still not really great character things for somebody who is applying to be in our United States military. Not only that with, again, because he kept, he couldn't score high enough. He couldn't score high enough. He was given the category for waiver to come on in and join the army national guard. And then he just sat back and kind of coasted, you know, the back in that day, um, even after nine 11, Oh, actually not after nine, this was like two years after nine 11, but he had been prior to nine 11 army national guard was really sort of mocked even more maybe than they are today. They were called the weekend warriors and all that. Um, not necessarily the case now to my knowledge anyway, but you know, Phil, I mean, Lou came in from West Point. He was a West Point officer assigned to come in and replace the commanding officer of this National Guard unit and get that National Guard unit up to speed and up to quality for deployment to a war zone, right? Which it was still pretty new for National Guard units to deploy to a war zone. This particular unit had never deployed to a combat zone before. So the Army brought in a West Point commander to bring this National Guard unit up to speed which created some conflict. 
especially with people like Martinez, who didn't want to do his job at all. He didn't want to work. He was lazy. He didn't want to do anything. He wasn't up to par. He was disorganized. And that did not sit well with a West Point graduate, especially with somebody as diligent and methodical and meticulous about his job as Captain Philip Esposito was. And so they clashed from the get-go. By the time they got to Iraq, tens of thousands of dollars of equipment was missing. Um, the military blamed both of them, everybody. It's like kind of known, but unknown, right? That Martinez sold that stuff on the black market. Phil was held accountable as well as the commanding officer. And that just increased the friction between them. Martinez had been threatening to kill or harm or hurt uh, Philip Esposito hundreds and hundreds of times, all the way up to the inspector general of the unit. But did anybody report him? No, they did not, right? Because why would you do that? Nobody told Phil that the supply sergeant he was disciplining and going to chapter out of the military was going to file an Article 15 against him. Nobody bothered to tell Phil that that guy who had the keys to the supply unit was threatening to kill him, right? Because I don't know why nobody thought to do so. And so there was Phil escalating the situation. Martinez had access to supply stuff. And he got himself a Claymore mine. He got himself some grenades. He kept it off the books. This was later found out at trial. And he prepared to kill Lou and Phil. Even before Lou arrived, Martinez was over in Iraq preparing to kill him. This guy he had never met before because he knew that Lou was going to be part of chattering him out. And Martinez was not going to allow that to happen. So on June 8th, 2005, as I'm sitting there, waiting to hear that beep from my husband on the laptop. The military knocks on the door, tells me my husband had been killed in a mortar attack in his sleep. And I knew that wasn't the case because he was going to call me. Uh, but what had really happened was that Martinez had known that Lou and Phil were in Phil's office together. And he grabbed the claimer mine. He grabbed the grenades. There was a sandstorm that night. It was a perfect cover for him. He went outside of the building and he tied the, the claimer mine on the office. He wheeled himself back to, you know, strung it out and hid behind the porta potties, detonated the claymore mine, and then threw some grenades around to make it look like an enemy attack. Now, Phil had some mercy shown to him, if you can call it that, I guess, because Phil was killed almost instantly. Certainly he was unconscious if he... There's disputes that I have heard, whether he was dead, whether he wasn't dead, they revived him, whatever, but certainly he was unconscious and not aware of what happened. Lou, on the other hand, was not immediately unconscious. He was conscious and he was in so much pain and he had no idea what was happening. And for the next couple of hours, Lou had the experience of escalating pain and confusion and not know, and trying to be transported to this hospital. And before he lost consciousness, he was well aware that he was actively dying, like not tomorrow, not next week. You know, he knew he was dying right now. And he was talking about me and our four boys who were six, five, three, and one at the time. So like every horrible thing you can picture for the person you love, happened to him. And so that was really hard for the people who love him to hear and to process. And obviously it still is all these years later, right? And this is the part that just is not sustainable to continue going out there and talking about in this way. So it's why I don't typically 
go that deep into the story. Uh, but in the military, when somebody is killed on active duty, the military goes to their paperwork and finds the primary next of kin. That would be in this case. And the primary next of kin is assigned what's called in the army anyway, it was a casualty assistance officer. And that's the liaison between the military and the and the primary next of kin person, in this case, me, his wife, to walk us through the funeral and the benefits and all these <laughs> horrible, horrible things nobody ever wants to be walked through. And it was the second day. Uh, it was June 9th, I think, when my CAO showed up at my house. I'm not going to name him here. I do name him in the book. But uh, this guy started off as my ally and turned into another non-ally, let's say, uh, down the road. And so he showed up at the house and was doing his thing and filling us in on what's happening. And then he left and he came back later that night to tell us that it had been changed to a a homicide investigation that an American soldier was suspected of killing my husband. And we, I, we didn't know at the time that Phil had been killed until I said, what is happening? Let me talk to Phil Esposito. And that's when my CAO was like, uh, sorry, Phil's the other guy that was killed. Like, <laughs> so that's how we found out that the only person that I knew that could speak to tell us what had happened had been killed with Lou. I mean, it was one horrible moment after another, after another, after another. Right. And so for the next three and a half years, my family and Phil's family were caught up in this court martial process. Like Phil's widow and I went to Kuwait to attend the Article 32 hearing, which is the first hearing against Martinez. Lou's dad flew himself out because the military wouldn't fly him. They would only fly me. Um, nothing like creating a little tension there between the wife and the in-laws, but that's another story too, but that's how it all started. The military focuses on one person and, and, and that's it. Um, it's a machine, right? And so that, that's just what they do. They have a process and they don't really deviate from them much unless they let someone kill another soldier. <laughs> I digress too, a little bitter, but so we spent the next three and a half years going through this court martial and watching this case deteriorate in front of us, like knowing things were going terribly awry and having this bad feeling and just seeing these things happen that did not make sense and discovering things behind the scenes that didn't make sense and that didn't sit well with us. In between that, I'm trying to be a mom to my four boys who were six, five, three, and one at the time who are now slowly growing up and evolving and going through all the stages of trauma that little kids go through. And then not on top of that, having no father in the picture. So we all hear about the fatherlessness situation in this country now, right? For, but to be raised without your parent missing a mom or dad is hard. It's hard in, in general, in quote, good times, right? But when you're surrounded by the murder trial and you have a mother who's constantly falling to pieces or disappearing for days at a time to go to a trial, that's harder even on kids. And so that's the path that my kids had to walk because of this. There's just ripple effects that go out through all the universe when something so evil happens. And these were part of the ripple effects that we were living through. And so three and a half years in, after going through all this, I had started to get my master's in criminal justice because I wanted desperately to understand what was happening. I had found a mentor miraculously when I could find nobody to answer questions. I didn't know how to do any of this. I mean, how are you supposed to know how to be a widow, go through a court martial and deal with seeing the person who killed your husband and sitting in a military world where I'm not really a military person. Like I didn't know how to do any of it. 
And I was able to be connected with Terry Seifert. Her husband, Chris, had been killed in 2003 by Sergeant Hassan Akbar in Kuwait. My husband and I actually watched, uh, paid attention to that case as it unfolded. My husband was horrified, mortified that something like that could happen in the military. And right before my husband was killed, Hassan Akbar had been committed, uh, convicted of, of capital murder. He had been found guilty of killing two fellow soldiers in Kuwait and wounding others as well. So Terry Seifer very kindly, graciously stepped forward when her pain was so fresh to mentor me through this process. And so I talk a lot now, often anyway, when people say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. I always say, find a mentor. It doesn't have to be somebody you reach out to and speak to in person. I'm going to speak about other mentors I found later that weren't in person but you can find somebody for every situation you've been in. Somebody else has walked it or damn near close to what your situation is and can guide you through it. You just have to have the courage and tenacity to reach out and find them and to humble yourself and learn from them. Right. So I'm grateful every day I had Terry Cypher reach out to me um, and that I can still reach out and connect with her today. Little, little things, right. Little people that were sent in our life, not little people, but, um, we always are given what we need if we just know how to find it and how to reach out and, and grab it, I think. So three and a half years down the road, in spite of Martinez signing a guilty plea and the military lying to us about it and covering it up, the military went ahead and acquitted him. How could that happen, you say? Why would that happen? It was literally like the O.J. Simpson case of the United States military, only since the military doesn't allow cameras in the courtroom and the military doesn't really give you any information about anything to the press. It was unable to be covered. There was no really social media the way it is today. So the military was able to squeak this one by with barely a blip, no matter what our families did to try to get the media in there to cover it more, there was just too much other stuff going on and the military did not make it easy to cover this case. So the media really sort of lost interest in large part in covering it. So we all know what happens when people aren't looking like in the shadows, everything can happen, right? I don't know what would have happened if this all unfolded today when it could have been so transparent, we could have exposed it like in real time to everybody. Would it have been different? I don't know. And we'll never know. Right. But we found out after the case, it was a day after a day after the acquittal that I found out that Martinez had signed a guilty plea over a year ago in the military. You cannot, the attorneys cannot submit a guilty plea unless they believe there's substantial evidence to convict their client of guilt. So by signing that and allowing their client to submit it, those defense attorneys said, we see as professional JAG attorneys, we see the evidence is here that there's a strong likelihood my client will be convicted. And so we're going to sign this plea and take the death penalty off the table and send him to prison for life with the potential of parole down the road. Right. And, and the military said, nope, we're not accepting that. And then a year later, they said, we're going to let you go, even though they knew he did it. I mean, the judge, the, uh, the United States Army's chief trial judge appointed himself to come into this case halfway through and then did things like see a husband and wife on the jury who were opposed to the death penalty. Two people strongly opposed to the death penalty, husband and wife, puts them on the jury uh, like no. And there were other anti-death penalty people on that jury as well. But then the judge refused to allow instructions to the jury 
making it clear that a conviction did not equal a death penalty. There was a lot of gray area in there. And a lot of the jurors were confused, thinking that if he was convicted, he was going to be sent sentenced to death, which is ironic because the military doesn't actually execute its death row prisoners anyway. They really just sort of languish there and die of old age. So the irony of that is, I guess, if there is any, that had Martinez been convicted and sent to death row, he would probably be alive and well today. But they let him out. They let let him out and gave him back pay for his time in in prison. Um, And there he was on the news, like all happy to be acquitted. Like I knew it was going to happen. And we had to watch all of that unfold. But ironically, a few years back, he died anyway. Uh, we're told it was drug related. So he did not live a long, full, happy life the way I'm sure he intended to do. After he was acquitted, he he died. You know, karma saw the justice through that the military judicial system did not, I guess. My husband and Phil have not been awarded the Purple Heart. The military says they were not killed by the enemy. Therefore, they do not qualify for the Purple Heart. I have been battling this for years, not necessarily just to get that medal there. It's not the piece of metal. It's not about attention. It's about what's right. And if you don't think that a United States soldier who kills another soldier intentionally while on active duty in a combat zone, if you don't think they are the enemy, then please tell me who is the enemy. If you don't think they have aided and abetted the enemy, please tell me who has. What is your definition of aiding and abetting the enemy? Not only that, But seeing as you acquitted, the military acquitted the person, the soldier that we all know killed him, then how do they prove it was not the enemy, right? So we have been battling this back and forth over the years, and we have had the support of a lot of incredible people, including two Vietnam veterans who stepped forward, didn't know me, never met me, had only heard my story, but found out to me, reached out to me and gave me their own purple hearts for my husband. I mean, just incredible, incredible gestures and moments that I've had with people over the years to help me kind of stay focused and really grow an even deeper respect and appreciation for the people who serve with honor in spite of the people who do not, right? But when you go through something of this level of tragedy, if you are not in rock star shape with your resilience, you're doomed on so many levels. I mean, even somebody who is, say, like trained for this and studied for this, who is the most resilient person, when you have something this catastrophic happen in your life, you're still going to struggle. Like that person is still going to struggle no matter how strong they are. It is still going to be a very crushing, devastating hit for them. When you're me, on the other hand, and you have very few resilient skills, I mean, you could break a bunch of bones in my body and I will you know, stoically deal with that, right? Physical pain, I got, I know how to handle, I know how to be sick, I know how to go through all that and handle physical pain. But the, uh, the level of pain that comes with grief and trauma on that scope so far outmatched my resiliency skills. I needed, my resilience skills were like down on the floor level and the level of skills needed to navigate a tragedy and trauma of that scope are like up on the roof. So there was a gigantic gap in resiliency and me and my kids just fell right through that gap. And it took 
years and years for me to figure out how to start climbing back out. It was on my 42nd birthday. So almost 10 days, exactly, you know, within months, 10 days uh, that my husband had been killed. And there I was outside on my driveway, on the phone, on a collect call with my ex-fiance from rehab. If that doesn't tell you what you need to know about my life, I mean, or paint a good enough picture, um, bear with me because I'll fill you in here a little more. He was calling me from rehab because he wanted more money. Now, never mind the fact that he had stolen my cars, all my bank cars, my debit cards. He had cleaned me out, right? Left me with nothing. He had even gone into my kids' rooms and like stolen their piggy bank money so he could buy himself his drugs and booze. And there he was calling me, collect nonetheless from rehab on my birthday, demanding more money and then hanging up on me without, or I hung up on him. Actually, I did promise you, I actually did hang up on him. Um, but he didn't wish me happy birthday either. Right. So in that moment, 10 years of pain and struggle, I had tried so hard. I had put this book out. I had been studying for my master's. I had got my master's degree. I'd gone to another capital court martial. I was involved in nonprofits. I'm trying to show up for my kids and feeding them, caring for them, loving for them. I'm not necessarily leading them, but I am loving them with every piece of me. Right. And I was just broken in that moment. I just crashed through that rock bottom place and just went even deeper. And I'm on the driveway and I am just sobbing. And I just prayed in that moment. I prayed. I apologized to God for letting him down. I apologized to Boo for letting him down, you know, and I prayed and prayed and said, please help me. Like I have to figure out how to get back up. I have to figure out how to put my life together. This cannot go on. I was in a like a death spiral at the time. I was going to lose my house. I mean, everything was happening. It was either I figure this out now or there's no return, right? And as I sat there praying so deeply, I was just kind of hit with this rush of warmth and this feeling of hope and grace and light. And I don't know, I can't explain what that was, I can just tell you how it felt. And I just knew in that moment that if I got back up, I would be able to rebuild. I would keep our house. I would get our lives together and I would be on track to make things okay again. I just had to get up and I did get back up and everything was different. I mean, everything was the same. Nothing had changed from three or five minutes ago, but everything was different. And I went inside and I hopped online and I found mentors online. I found Dr. Sean Stevenson and I found Nick Vujicic. And if you don't know who Dr. Sean Stevenson was and who Nick Vujicic is, I strongly recommend you find them and their work and their videos and study them and learn from them. Because if their grace and insight and wisdom and strength and tenacity can teach me and inspire me and get me up out of that like pit I was in, that hole I was in and help me put things back together. It can do the same for you. Or maybe you find some other people out there that have stories that you connect with, who have struggles that you connect with and you learn from them. When I talked about mentors before, I had Terry Seifert in person. I had these guys virtually and I have never stopped surrounding myself with mentors in some way, shape or form since then. Even now, as I'm facing some other situation in life where I never imagined I would be facing 
and going through some more struggles there. I'm finding other mentors who have been through certain situations like that and helping me through that too. That never ends. Always find those mentors. They are always out there. That is part of why we built the Great American Syndicate to stack it full of mentors who can support one another and lift each other up. That is why we hold our Great American Summit because we want to connect people who can be mentors for each other, who can get mentoring from the people there, especially the speakers we bring in and the, the knowledge and the talent and the insight that we bring in through our speakers at that event is next level. I still have people asking me, Barb, how did you get these people to come to your event the very first year? And most of them waived their speaking fees, right? Incredible. And I'm like, they came because they're incredible human beings and proud Americans, and they believe in what we're doing. And they honor Lou and all the people like him who give up so much of themselves. Um, many of these people who came and support us are veterans themselves. They have paid significantly high costs with their own lives and their friends' lives to serve and protect us all. And that is part of our new Flex Your Freedom platform, right? A, we can never take for granted where our freedom comes from, what it is, what's at stake here in this country and in our lives. Um, veterans are a huge part of it. Our law enforcement, our first responders as well, they serve and they give and sacrifice so much of themselves so that we can be free. But the flex your freedom also involves personal freedom, financial freedom, emotional freedom, physical freedom, um, all, all level, freedom of faith, what I'm saying. So faith, uh, freedom comes in so many ways, shapes, and forms. And that is what we're going to be focusing on, on flex your freedom. I have people in my life who have helped me free myself from the opinions and the weight of others and the hate of others and the weight of my own self-doubt and my pain and my trauma that if I allow that to continue to build, if you let yourself remain a victim, you're going to be preyed upon, right? And that's where I was. I was stuck in the victim mindset. And every now and then I feel that like coming back up, sneaking back up the road, trying to pull me back down. And I surround myself with my mentors. I'm like, help me get out. And they do, right? It is an ongoing process grief and trauma and the pain that comes from it, they're about as transitory as like Biden's inflation, right? It's really not transitory at all. They're always there. You always have to manage it or it's always going to come back up and get you. But those are those things we're going to be talking about on this show on Flex Your Freedom. It's the people we're going to be bringing into Great American Syndicate. If you want to know more about my husband's murder and the Capitol court-martial that surrounded it and the emotional side that went around that front toward enemy is the book. While I'm here, I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to give you a little extra negative advice, right? I get a lot of calls and questions from people asking to write books. I have three books on my own now. I just finished ghostwriting a book for a client, which was another huge achievement for me. Um, but of the questions people ask, they never ask Never ask one of the questions that you don't think about until it's too late and it's time. And so you know how in books, uh, authors will put a dedication. We often dedicate our books to particular people, right? And on my second book, <laughs> on my second book, I had just met the dude who I was telling you about called me on my birthday, right? And even back then, all the red flags were waving. They were like, yo, 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 here I am, a red flag waving. And I just wasn't paying attention and I ignored it and I let that guy in and I dedicated my second book to him. <laughs> the How to Woo Widow book, I put him in the dedication. I don't know why. I don't know why. I guess I could feel like how needy he was, right? Um, but there he was 
in the dedication. And then I had to pay to get him out. Um, oh, you know what? As I'm speaking, it was worse than that. Holy moly. See, I'm flashing back. Memory blurs, right? You remember different things. It was this freaking book. It was my first book that came out um, when he was around. And I did it. I put him in this book, in this dedication. Cost me a lot of money, but uh, I got him out. I got him out because he had no business in here. So that is my lesson to you, authors to be. Pay attention who you're putting in your dedication to your book because it's easier to get a tattoo removed than to get somebody written out of your book. <laughs> you put him in there and it's your book, man. Don't put them in if they don't count. But follow me for more helpful tips like that. Barbell Speaks on Instagram. Um, barbellandspeaks.com is my website and Great American Syndicate is the site uh, where all things that we do on our platform, our podcasts, our apparel, our events, our speakers bureau that we're opening up. We have a line of speakers that you can book through us as well. Super exciting, incredible people on that. We're going to bring them all back in the podcast and the new platform to be re-interviewed by yours truly. If there's people that you think fit our platform that you would like to hear from, topics you want to hear from, shoot me a message. Again, on Instagram, Barbell and Speaks. I'm really accessible there. Uh, shoot me a message and I'll do my best to get back to you. I do always get back to everybody that I, whose messages I see and um, we'll just keep this conversation going. So then make sure you don't let anybody get in the way of the things that you care about. You are free to exercise your own free will, however you see fit. And that is something worth defending every single day. That is what we're going to bring to you here on Flex Your Freedom and in our Great American Syndicate and at our Great American Summit next January. I look forward to this walk with you. Thank you so much for being here with us. Mm -hmm.